or in Moses' case, has lived, but we can learn a lot from him. And uh, we've seen that Moses, you know, while he's had godly biological parents who probably informed him of the truth of uh, the reality of where he came from and his Judaism and his descendancy from Abraham and so on, um, the first third of his life, he was uh, pretty much raised uh, by his adoptive parents. And uh, I would say that the first third of his life, he was trained in the ways of the world in Egypt. And uh, he was, uh, if you will, a prince uh, in Egypt and uh, had the best of everything that the world had uh, to offer him and, and so forth. The second third of his life, we've seen, uh, he spent out in the desert uh, for 40 years uh, where we noticed that Moses' relationship with God was marked by the essential quality of humility. Uh, Moses went from royalty, right, all the way uh, to the desert in Midian where he became a shepherd, which was kind of like the lowliest job you could uh, possibly imagine. And uh, I kept thinking about this as I <clears throat> watched a little bit of the royal wedding, right, and what it means to be royalty and what it would mean to lose all of that and to be out in the desert as a shepherd. And uh, he learned humility. And uh, we also saw that um, somewhere along the line, Moses had a dream that someday God would use him to uh, release and rescue the slaves uh, of Israel from the grip of Egypt. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, we read that that was a part of uh, his thought. And uh, he had this dream of someday doing that. And uh, his dream, I would suggest, pretty much died in the desert, right? And, uh, and then we saw that God came to him in the burning bush and uh, sort of resurrected the dream. And uh, God said, you know, I've come down to rescue my people. And uh, I'm going to send you, Moses, to uh, be my spokesperson. So in addition to humility, Moses also, out in the desert, learned that God really is trustworthy. And that if we're going to live in a relationship with God, uh, we need to learn to really trust him. God revealed more and more of himself to Moses uh, so that Moses could increase his confidence in God and that he could learn to trust God more. And so from our mentor, Moses, we learn, you know, that if we're going to live in a relationship with God, not only do we have to choose humility. I think there's no such thing as humility without choosing it. If you're humble, it's because you've decided I'm going to choose humility. And, uh, but humility's not enough. It's not enough to just empty ourselves of ourselves uh, but we also need to be filled with this confidence that God has taken up residence within us. Remember, we uh, talked about Colossians chapter 3, which says, you know, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you say and whatever choices you make, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. Do everything out of the fullness of this new life that God puts uh, within us. So humility on the one hand, but then filled with this confidence about this God who's revealed himself uh, to us and revealed himself to Moses uh, back in uh, Moses' day. Now today, I want to suggest a third uh, component, not only humility and not only uh, trusting in this God who's taken up residence in us, but there's a third component when we live in a relationship with God that I believe we can learn from observing Moses or allowing Moses to be our uh, mentor. And uh, it's simply this. I think it's very appropriate for Memorial Day uh, for us to consider this and to think about this in our own relationship with God. Uh, but what happens when you do what's right and you do what God's asking you to do and things go wrong? 
You do what God's asking you to do. You do what's right, and things get worse. It seems so appropriate to me uh, on Memorial Day. What happens? Um, what happens when you send your daughter or your son off to war to defend God and country, bathed in prayer, and the unthinkable happens? What happens? That soldier, that pilot, that Navy officer, that Marine that we're so proud of or so in love with goes out and then doesn't come back. Memorial Day. What happens when we do what God asks us to do and things go wrong? What happens when we get mad? And especially when we get mad at God. What happens when God reveals himself to us and we take him at his word and we take him at face value and we launch out in life and life goes wrong. Have you ever had an experience like that? You thought you knew what God was saying. You thought you knew how it was going to play out. So you go out with all the enthusiasm and commitment that you can muster and you uh, ask, you know, you relate to God in prayer and, and, uh, and, and you launch out and then things go wrong. And so... Um, in our story where we left off, Moses, um, you know, God spoke to Moses in um, chapter 4 of Exodus and uh, in verse um, 19 where um, God says to Moses in 419 that he's to um, go and to meet his brother and go back to Egypt, right? And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So God comes to Moses and says, I want you to go back to Egypt. In verse 27, God goes to Aaron, Moses' older brother. And the Lord says to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Because they haven't seen each other for years. Uh, and so you remember the whole story about uh, Moses wanting Aaron to be his spokesperson and so forth. And so they meet at the mountain of God or Mount Horeb or sometimes called Mount Sinai. It's a mountain that's uh, relatively close um, to Egypt. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And, uh, and then Moses and Aaron go off and uh, go into Egypt, okay? And so um, it's important, I think, to remember that uh, way back in chapter 4 and verse 21, God not only... Uh, told Moses uh, to go back to Egypt, that all the people who were trying to kill you are now dead and so forth. Um, but look what he says in verse 21. The Lord also said to Moses, go back to Egypt. Um, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I'm going to harden his heart, God says, so that he won't let the people. I'm telling you ahead of time, Moses, things aren't going to go well. Moses is not going to just roll over and die and let all the people go. I'm telling you, um, Moses, up front, what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to have trouble there. So God warns Moses. In fact, he warned him way before this, in, even in um, chapter 3 and uh, verse uh, 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Unless I do something spectacular... Pharaoh's not going to let the people go. So Moses has been told ahead of time that it's going to be tough, okay? Uh, there's this tension, however, that uh, is raised by the thought that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. 
Some people get really uncomfortable when they read a verse like that and say, well, how could you hold Pharaoh responsible if God is the one hardening his heart? It's pretty interesting when you study this, you, you realize there are 10 verses in the narrative here that say God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. There are also 10 verses that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 10 verses of each. There is this interplay, right, of God's sovereign will being imposed upon the world. It's how God can uh, reveal through prophecy what's going to happen in the future because he's in control. But there's also this uh, free will of man where we are totally responsible for the choices and the decisions that we make. And there's this, I, I, as you know, like to call this attention that we live in, right? It's this between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, there is this sort of conundrum uh, about uh, how does that work out? Uh, did God harden his heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And uh, how does the absolute power of God and the responsibility of us for our decisions, how does that all work together? And uh, some have suggested, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart by simply giving him over to his own nature. It's not like God found a really good guy and said, I'm going to make him bad, right? He starts out pretty bad. And uh, it's like God just abandoned him to his own nature. Some, some of that is, I think, in Romans as well. Uh, but the more God revealed himself to Pharaoh, the harder Pharaoh got. I think you've probably all heard the uh, expression that the same sunshine melts wax and hardens clay. The same light, right, melts wax and hardens clay. And the same revelation of God melts the heart of a believer, right, but hardens the heart of an unbeliever. The more you talk about God to an unbeliever, the harder they get. True? Have you had that experience? And so this interplay between God's sovereign control over our lives and our responsibility to respond to him and uh, to be responsible for the choices and decisions we make uh, all play together. And I think only faith brings those two together and enables us to live in that kind of uh, tension that those two truths actually uh, create. And so Moses and Aaron uh, go down into uh, Egypt and... Uh, we read these words in um, chapter 4, uh, verses 29 and following, um, where we see this. Moses uh, told Aaron, you know, at their meeting, all that had happened and so forth. And then Moses and Aaron went, verse 29, and they um, gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. So they go down into Egypt. They get all the leaders of the people of Israel together. And uh, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and they did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. The people believed. And uh, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. They were really excited. I mean, imagine yourself. These people have been uh, in Egypt for about 400 years now, by the time we're up to where we're at. And uh, for at least 200 of those years, they've been slaves. And so all of a sudden, you know, and it's been hard labor and so forth. And all of a sudden, uh, here comes Moses and Aaron. They have this announcement. God has heard your prayers. God's going to come. God's going to deliver you. And uh, things are going to be great. And I'm thinking these leaders are like, you know, really pumped and excited. Uh, they're beginning to imagine what would life be like without slavery? Wouldn't that be cool? 
Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't life be great if God actually delivered us to that land flowing with milk and honey? Uh, I'm, I'm imagining these guys going home and saying to their wives and to their neighbors, pack up. Saying to the kids, get your stuff together. We're blowing out of this place. Finally, you know, God is down here to deliver us and so forth. And so they believed Moses and Aaron and they started to worship. They bowed down to God and began to worship and thanked him and, and so forth and, and so forth. So you ever get some good news like this and start to imagine how it's going to be? Maybe you, you know, open your Bible and you're, you're reading in the morning and God speaks to you and there's a verse that sort of jumps out and, and you begin to imagine like, wow, wow, I, I wonder how that's going to work itself out and so forth. Or, you know, you hear a message or you read a, a book or you're listening to the radio on your way to work and so forth and, and, and God sort of speaks to you and you start to imagine and you get excited and then it doesn't go the way you thought. And problems arise. So in chapter 5... Um, here's what happened. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and they said to Pharaoh. So they say to the people of Israel, God's come to deliver you. It's going to be great. Then they go to Pharaoh and uh, thus says the Lord, they say to Pharaoh, the God of Israel says, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who's that? We have our own gods here. Who is the Lord of the Hebrews, Right. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? In other words, Pharaoh's basically like saying, you crazy, right? And uh, who is the Lord that I should let them go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, um, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to him, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and uh, you want to make them rest from their burdens. The same day, the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather their own straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they must make is the same as it was in the past and impose that on them. And you shall by no means reduce it for they are idle and therefore they cry, let us go offer a sacrifice to our God. Uh, let the heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to these lying words. Pharaoh's reaction was not good, right? He makes it worse. Um, you know, they used straw to mix with mud to make bricks. There was a certain chemical that the straw would give off when it was mixed with mud that would bind uh, the mud together, and the straw itself would uh, hold the bricks together. And so uh, they used to supply them with the straw, but now they had to go get their own straw. And uh, Pharaoh is being a problem here. Um, again, these people have been here for a long time, 400 years. They're an asset to Egypt's economy. Uh, these people are a key to the luxury that the people in Egypt live with, slavery. Um, the people in Egypt had a kind of a luxurious lifestyle compared to other countries around them, sort of like America enjoys uh, even today, uh, compared to many other uh, nations and countries. And a key to that was uh, these uh, Hebrew slaves. And uh, so Pharaoh makes it worse for the people. So what happens here? Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people 
went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I'm not going to give you straw. Go get the straw yourself, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. And so the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, and when there was, when there was straw, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh, uh, taskmaster, had set over them, uh, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all of your task of making the bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And so uh, all of this is saying, you know what? Uh, one day we're hearing from God that he's come down to deliver us. The next day we're more sideways with Pharaoh than we've ever been before. And we're getting beat for it. Things are getting worse instead of better, all because God is going to rescue us from slavery. And it doesn't make sense to the people. And they start to complain about it, right? The Hebrew people are uh, really in trouble at this point, and uh, they're an impossible, in an impossible situation because of God's decision to come and to save them. And so what do they do? Verse 20 and 21. Um, they meet Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look upon you, okay, and judge you. The Lord look upon you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've made life worse for us. You have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You've really made life a lot worse for us, Moses and Aaron. You notice what they do here? They turn against the people. They turn against somebody. They try to blame somebody for their terrible situation, right? They're turning against Moses and Aaron and blaming them for the mess that they're now in. Uh, they blame the messengers. They're basically saying to Moses and Aaron, you're killing us. You're killing us. You're going to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's worse than ever. You're killing us. They blame the messengers. But notice what Moses does. Then Moses turned to the Lord. Moses didn't look for somebody else to blame. Moses turned to the Lord, right? And he prays. And he says, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why are you making things worse? And, and why did you ever send me? You know, I, I'm in a pickle here now. Why did you ever send? I told you not to send me, find somebody else. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You haven't lived up to your promise. Now, this is a really interesting uh, passage of Scripture. Um, Moses asks why. He asks why. This isn't what Moses expected. Things are not working out like he envisioned them. Now, you and I, we know from hindsight, I mean, this happened a couple thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago. And so with hindsight, we can look back and say, hey, Moses, this was part of something much bigger that you didn't totally understand at this point. There was something about God displaying how powerful he is to both the, the believing world and the unbelieving world, to both the Hebrews and to the Egyptians. And we can look back and we can say, Moses, you should be patient. Just trust God. He'll, he'll, he'll work it out. But this stuff was written for our benefit so that we in our situations can know that perhaps we're part of something much bigger 
And the difference between living a God-first life and a me-first life is to be able to have the perspective that God really is in charge and he will do what he says. But it might not be according to our timing, right? And so even when we don't understand uh, what's going on and even when we do all the right things, it may be that things get worse. And so I want to suggest that this third reality of living in a relationship with God, humility, you know, uh, learning uh, uh, who God really is, how to trust him and so forth, this third reality that marks the life of somebody uh, who is in, in a relationship with God is this, that when things go wrong, we believe that God has a purpose. We believe that God has a purpose. We choose to believe that God has a purpose in the things that are going wrong and that God even can take those wrong things and use them for his purposes, which are much bigger than our purposes. His purposes are eternal. Um, and this is another dimension of, of just living a God-first, God-centered uh, life. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, you remember in the New Testament, there was a man who was born blind. And uh, I often think of this. I, I told you about uh, uh, the autistic school and all the thousands of kids that they've been able to minister to and so forth. And in John chapter 9, there was a man who's born blind, right? And the natural question comes from the disciples uh, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. I think, wow, look at these parents, you know, who are so excited they're going to have a child, and then uh, the child is born and the child is blind. And so the disciples asked the question, uh, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Whose fault is this? Why did this happen? And we ask that question, don't we? Like, what did we do wrong that we have to suffer like this and so forth? And Jesus said, uh, it was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I've got a plan, God says. Part of my plan is exposing Jesus for who he really is. And I'm going to use this man born blind uh, for Jesus to do a miracle on so that the world can understand that Jesus is not just another ordinary person. He's not just another rabbi blowing through town. And God has a plan, and it's bigger right, than the individual's plans. And I think, wow, it's the, um, it's the Romans 8.28. Most Christians know this uh, verse, Romans 8.28. I wonder if you've ever uh, kind of looked at this uh, and just kind of picked out a few of the words here. It says, Romans 8.28, for we know uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's a great verse. Uh, but I wonder if we really believe it. Um, you know, if you pull a few words out of here, like the first word that uh, I've underlined in my Bible, we know that everything works together for good. We know this. We don't hope it. We don't wish everything would work together for good. This is something a Christian knows in his heart, that God is sovereign and God has got a plan and we're part of that plan and God is working that plan and we know that whatever happens to us in life is part of that plan. And we get this confidence to be able to rely on God because we know. It's not that we hope or we wish or, you know, maybe this will work out for good somehow. No, we know this. We know it's part of a plan. And not only that, but... Uh, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
All things? Everything. But there's a lot of bad things that happen. That's true. But all of these things, because God is sovereign, work together for good. And that, that's another, <clears throat> work together. It doesn't say that everything that happens to us in life is good. Things go wrong. Life can be tough. Life can be unfair. And on and on. We can do all the right things and still things go wrong. Why? And uh, here, this verse says, you know, that all of these things work together. I heard somebody explain this one time, and I've never forgotten. They said, you know, if you go to bake a cake, right, and you take flour, you take sugar, you take butter, eat any of those things by themselves, it's really not good. But you throw them together, subject them to a little heat, and out comes a cake. And that's very good. And uh, it's not that everything in our life is good. It's that God is able to take even the worst things. The worst thing that ever happened in the whole history of the human race is that Jesus went to the cross. It's the worst thing that ever happened. And God made it the best thing. It's our salvation. And so when these things happen to us in life and life goes wrong, you know, um, Moses asked God why. Because he believes that there's a reason. The people blame the messenger. But uh, Moses knows uh, that God, you know, has called him to do this and so on. And so, and, and not only that, but in that verse, you know, it doesn't say that we know that all things work together for good for everybody. For those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, everything will work together for good, ultimately. And, um, you know, what's, what's God's purpose and what's our purpose? Our purpose is how can I find more comfort in life, Right? God's purpose is how can I let the world know how great I am and how much I'm for the people, for I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son and so on. And so for those who are called according to his purpose, even the things that are negative work together ultimately uh, for good. And so in our relationship with God, when we're tempted to be mad at God, um, do we have the confidence that God has a purpose in what's happening for our good? Do we believe it? Um, even when we're up against great loss, like on Memorial Day. Even when we suffer personal loss, can we trust uh, that God will use the events in our lives uh, for his own great purposes? And so Moses did what God asked, and it seemed like things got worse. And again, I think we can identify with this. Would you maybe say, you know what, I witnessed to my neighbor because I knew God was asking me to do it, and now my neighbor won't talk to me at all. Right? I made it worse. Uh, you can identify with Moses here. I forgave somebody, and they used it against me. They keep walking all over me like I'm weak because I did what I believed God was asking me to do. Um, I made a faith promise commitment to give to missions for the first time, and I lost my job. You know, uh, I went on a short-term missions trip and came home with dinghy fever. Got sick, Whatever. And so this is part of um, our relationship with God. And if we allow ourselves to be mentored by Moses when things go wrong, uh, we need to know that God has a purpose in it. And um, the temptation is to get mad at God because God is the only one who could have prevented what has gone wrong. And we believe that, right? As believers, we know that God could have changed things and God could have kept this from happening and so forth. And he's really the only one uh, that we uh, can blame. So if we allow ourselves to be mentored by Moses, we come to the point where we recognize that 
I need to rely on God in the midst of things when they go wrong. Uh, God will have a purpose, uh, and he allows these things to happen. And so Moses now, um, back in Exodus, goes back to the people. And um, in Exodus chapter 6, and uh, verses 6 to 8, um, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Um, Moses continues to speak for God. He continues to say to the people, God's going to do what he said he was going to do. And, um, but look at what happens to the people. Look at their reaction. Here's the problem. The people's faith was not bigger than their circumstances. Okay, and so their reaction to Moses, verse 9, uh, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because, their, uh, because of their broken spirit and because of the harsh slavery. What happened to their worshiping faith? What happened to their confidence that God's going to deliver them? What happened? Where did it go? As soon as the circumstances got tougher, uh, they said to Moses, you know, we're not going to listen to you anymore. Leave us alone. And Moses is just the messenger. Where did their faith in God go? Well, their circumstances came against them. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, they weren't going to grow their faith. I don't know, have you ever tried to um, speak to somebody with a broken spirit? Somebody who's been devastated by circumstances and losses? And that's the people of Israel. And uh, so they're mad at Moses, and they're not going to talk to Moses anymore. Um, and they're not going to listen to what he says. And I think this is why it's so important. It's so important to uh, build a person's faith before the circumstances of life come up to destroy it. It's so important to uh, have young people, you know, uh, understand the scriptures and understand who God really is. It's so important to have youth uh, established in their faith before they go off to college so that they know who God is and how he comes through and how he works and all the rest of it. It's so important uh, from the very beginning uh, for young people, children, to get established in their faith before the circumstances of life come and try to beat your faith out of you. Because that's what happens uh, as we go along. And so it's so significant. Remember, we talked about this, uh, I don't know, several weeks ago where we said, you know what? 10% of our life is what happens to us. 90% of our life is the way we respond to what happens to us. It's not the 10% that breaks us. It's how we respond to the circumstances that happen in our lives. Do we have the faith to respond in, in the ways that we need to? And uh, it's so important, I think, to establish that. And the key ingredient in our response in any situation is either the presence or the absence of faith and our trust in God and how well we know what he said and uh, where he's going and what his plans are for the future and so forth. What we believe is really the most important part of us. It enables us to respond uh, to the circumstances. And so, so the people say, Moses, we're not, we don't want to just leave us alone. And uh, they set up a pattern like this. Uh, what happens now, um, you know, so you know the story, right? They get out of Egypt and they're, um, and they're up against the Red Sea. And all of a sudden the Egyptians are 
uh, the Egyptian army is chasing after them. And in Exodus chapter 14, um, you know, now they see the army coming after them. The Red Sea is in front of them. They say to Moses, uh, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness out here? You know, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you while we were still in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Right? And uh, so in chapter 15, verse uh, 23 and, and, and 24, uh, they're, they're, now, they're now out of Egypt. They're across the Red Sea. And they're three days into their journey. That's going to last for 40 years, right? But they're three days into it. Look at this. Uh, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. And uh, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses. And they said, uh, what are we going to drink? And Moses does what he always does. He cries to the Lord. He turns to the Lord instead of blaming people and so forth. Uh, in chapter 14, if we go back to verse uh, 31, it's kind of interesting. Three days before, this is how Israel was. Uh, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. These are fickle people. Right? They're with Moses, they're against Moses, they're listening to Moses, they're not listening to Moses, they're out in the desert, they want to go back to Egypt and so forth. And uh, so, you know, three days before, they're like all in. Hey, we trust God, look at this, we just got through the Red Sea, look at this, we just had ten miracle judgments that got us out from underneath. Look at this, God even loaded it up with, with uh, gold and silver and uh, we're leaving, you know, Egypt with more money and resources than we've ever had in our lives than we ever dreamed of. And they just had all of that happen to them. They just saw the miracles. That's why sometimes people say, oh, if God would just do a miracle, it would also help my faith. And I always think of these people, and I think they just had 10 miracles. And three days later, they, you know, then they have the Red Sea, another one. And three days later, they're like, we're done. The people are so fickle. In chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, um, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We're hungry, right? And uh, they're not happy about it. And so in chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, same thing. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, uh, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst and so on? Now, this is just right after, if you go back to chapter, um, let's see, uh, 15, the last verse. Look at this. Then they came to Elam. You've all heard of Elam Park? This is where Elam comes from, okay? Uh, then they came to a place called Elam, and there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and so they camped there by the water. Elam was an oasis in the middle of the desert, right? It's the En Gedi of, you know, these travels. 
And uh, they, they came to this place, and there's water, and there's palm trees, and it's like vacation time. And so they camped out there for a while. But it was right after that that now, you know, they're back to complaining about the same kinds of things. And they're quarreling and grumbling at um, Moses. It just keeps going. And Moses, however, you know, was kind of smart about this. It's kind of interesting. If you ever have people who are, you know, grumbling at you, um, Moses' advice in uh, chapter 16, verse 7 and 8 is really great. Um, Here's what he says. In the morning, you're going to see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. They were grumbling against Moses, but Moses knew it was really against God. They were crabbing at Moses, but Moses really knew they were grumbling against. This is God's idea. Moses is just a messenger. God's the one who's leading them out. God's the one who's making the promises. God's the one who's got the future for them. And Moses understood when you're crabbing, you're really crabbing against God's plan for your life. Okay, for what are we that you would grumble against us? Moses like, we're just the messenger. And so then look at this. Moses says, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Well, You just ask yourself, are you mad at anybody? Could you grumble against somebody for something that's not gone right in your life and you're mad at somebody that because they messed up or they dropped the ball or they made a promise that they didn't keep or or whatever? Uh, Moses understands that, you know what? When people do that, they're really just mad at God. You know why? Because it's a lot easier to be mad at a person and blame somebody than it is to go to God and wrestle with what God's doing with your life. Somebody offends you at work, you get mad at them because they've messed up your life. You get mad on 95 because somebody cuts you off and then drives slow. I get mad at those people. (laughs) Just in case you're ever in front of me. (laughs) Think about it though, isn't it true? Uh, If you're angry at somebody, can you see how that's just a cover for being angry at God? Because what if God put that person in your life for a reason, to help you grow your faith? What if God put that stumbling block in the way so that you could depend more on him and learn more from him and handle it like Jesus handled things, and it was all by design? But you're just mad at them, and you're not wrestling with God to say, What are you doing? You're not going to God like Moses did and saying, why? Why did this guy do that? Why did that lady act like that? Instead of going to God and asking why, we just get mad at the person because going to God and trying to figure this out is hard work. But Moses, instead of being fickle like the people and just finding somebody to blame, Moses is constantly going to God and saying, God, what's up with this? Why is this? Why is that? Why is the... Why are the situations working out like this? It seems to me that there were three major purposes for the miracles that God did. Um, In uh, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, we read that um, God did these miracles. I'm going to redeem you people with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And uh, I'm going to take you to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. The first purpose for the miracles that God did, those ten miracle judgments to get Pharaoh to release the people, 
was so that it was for the people's benefit. I mean, Pharaoh kept saying, no, 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 nine times. Finally, he said, please, get out. You know, and um, what, what was that all about? Well, it was for the people's sake, so that they would know that the, the God that they worship is the God of all power. And you can have confidence in him, and you can rely on him. You can depend upon him. And in chapter 7 and verse 5, uh, a second reason for the miracles, the Egyptians are going to know that I'm the Lord. And that when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring my people out from among them, they're going to know it was God. It was not your small g gods. That, you know, your small g gods are nothing compared to the God who truly exists, the God who created all things. And then in um, chapter 12 and verse 12, um, I think the third reason for these miracles comes up. Uh, and this is talking about the last miracle, the uh, Passover. I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'm going to strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. The third reason was to show the impotency of any other god besides the god of the Israelites. The foolishness of worshiping and depending on a small g God. Remember when God says in the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other God, small g, before me. I am the God who exists. I'm the God who created and so forth. And it's so that people can, you know, grasp and understand who this God really is. And that the other gods could be shown for who they really are. And so from, um, from Exodus chapter 7 all the way through verse 11, you have these... Ten miraculous signs from God, judgments from God. First of all, the, the, you know, the uh, Nile River turns into blood. Remember, that? that's the first miracle. And that was pretty significant because um, the Nile River was the source of the Egyptians' food supply. It was the source of their fish, and it was the source of their drinking water. And so imagine what happens if the whole Nile turns into blood. Uh, that was a problem. Uh, but it's interesting if you read through this. If you read through chapters um, 7 to 11, you know, it's like reading uh, a horror story. It's like just, it's like watching something on TV. And, uh, and each time, you know, something happens, Pharaoh just says no. He gets tougher and tougher and tougher. Uh, then there's frogs, right? There's frogs everywhere. And uh, then there's gnats. And, uh, you know, the Egypt's magicians are... are doing the same miracles. They're, they're doing the same thing up until the gnats, and they couldn't reproduce the gnat. And I don't understand because the magicians are just making everything worse. They're just showing that they can do the same thing by the power of the enemy. And then there's swarms of flies, and then uh, all the Egyptian uh, animals die, the livestock dies, and God makes a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians in terms of these judgments. Now they start uh, touching the Egyptians but not touching the Hebrews and so forth. And then there's boils and hail and locusts, and then there's darkness for three days. And um, again, it's like watching a horror movie. And finally, there's the Passover, where the firstborn of every Egyptian family dies, along with the firstborn of every animal. And so before all of this happens, uh, way back in Exodus chapter 4, it's very interesting. God said to Moses, when he's preparing him to go to Egypt, okay, God says to Moses in um, Verse 22 and 23, Moses, this is what you're going to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now remember, the Passover is taking out all the Egyptian firstborns. And it's very significant. Uh, firstborn, you know, inherited a double portion and they were responsible and so forth. Um, 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You tell that to Pharaoh. Israel is God's firstborn son. You might say the church is God's bride, right? But Israel is the firstborn son and has certain rights and, and all kinds of things are attached to that firstborn. And God says, you know, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to take out your firstborn from you all the way down to the lowest person in the whole society. And that's what happens in the Passover. And uh, Lord willing, we'll uh, dwell on that a little bit next uh, week. Um, but there's this ramping up of this increasing power uh, of God, uh, the miracles. Uh, Pharaoh has nine chances to stop hardening his heart before God does to Pharaoh what Pharaoh's trying to do to God's firstborn. And so the gods that the Egyptian worshipped, you know, were thought to be behind their luxurious life. Now, again, think about this in closing. Just think about this in terms of our own uh, American culture and so forth. The gods that the Egyptians worshipped were thought to be behind their luxurious life. And um, <clears throat> the gods were honored because they were thought to be the source of the life that the Egyptians enjoyed. And so the Nile River, for example, was worshipped. The Nile River would raise 30 feet over uh, its normal uh, height. And um, the very rich soil from all the fish would spill out up to a mile away from the river and deposit this uh, great topsoil, if you will, all along the uh, river. And, that's, and the crops loved it. And so that was the source you know, of so much of uh, Egypt's food. And uh, so when that all turned to blood, just imagine uh, what happened. And, but what God is showing is mocking, right? It's what Romans says, don't worship the creation, worship the creator, right? What, what happens to people is they fall in love with the creation and they ignore the creator. The same thing when God, uh, when one of the judgments was three days of darkness, the Egyptians worshiped the sun god, Ray. They worshiped the sun. And so God brings this judgment of three days, no sun, in order to mock their God, Ray. Like, this God is more powerful uh, than the, the small g gods that uh, you worship, and, and so on and so forth. And just to show the impotence of any God except the God. And uh, these plagues make life miserable and, and poke fun at the luxury gods of Egypt. Uh, the God who would impose death on the firstborn is stronger than the gods of Egypt's life, especially the death of the firstborn son. So what's the significance of that last miracle, the Passover? And how is it connected to Jesus and being uh, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us so that God passes over our sin and uh, enables us to have this relationship with him, uh, a relationship similar to the relationship Moses enjoyed with God? We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, history is really amazing when we just stop and think about Moses and all that happened in Egypt and all that you did to release your people from slavery. And Father, how that applies to us today and how it pointed to Jesus and how we live, Father, in the luxury of a relationship with you. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would uh, recognize who you are and who we are. And that we would be humbled, Father, by who you are. When we have these difficult situations in life, like when Moses was in the desert for 40 years, uh, it's humbling. 
And uh, he chose to be humble. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us and that as you reveal more and more of yourself to us as we get to know you, that we'll trust you more, that our faith will in fact grow to the point when things go wrong, we'll rely on you to come and to speak to us and, and to answer our questions about why. And that we, Father, would have a context and a faith that would be bigger than our circumstances so that we're not complaining uh, like the people that we can learn from here in the text. And uh, may we, even when we do everything right, and even when we do what you ask us to do and things go wrong, I just pray, Father, that you would help us to be like Moses and uh, not to find somebody to blame, but rather, Father, to turn to you and to allow you to grow our faith so it's bigger than our circumstances. For your own glory's sake, we pray. Amen.